Hi, welcome back to Optimizing. This is Professor Barry Dwalaski. And I'm Karen Gammy. In the fourth episode, you spoke about how to slay a werewolf. And it was basically about the software engineering industry, the discipline that you've been involved in for most of your working life. And you ended that episode by telling us a little bit about the late 90s and kind of your major interests and how it had led to you wanting to help grow and transform the South African information and communication tech industry. Tell us a little bit more about that. So I mentioned in episode three that South Africa is one of the oldest IT industries in the world. In the 1990s, it stood at a crossroads. Through the 1980s, international companies withdrew from South Africa due to sanctions against apartheid, leaving local companies free to grow and prosper. And then, in 1994, everything changed. Sanctions were lifted, and suddenly South Africa became a very competitive place for IT companies. International giants with a long history in South Africa, like IBM, came back and quickly picked up where they'd left off. Newer companies like Apple, Microsoft, Sun Microsystems and Oracle quickly gained market share. And then India's rapidly emerging IT companies started to enter South Africa. All of a sudden, local companies had a fight to retain their market position. In the late 1990s, the Canadian government sponsored a major study of the South African IT sector. It was carried out by PwC through the South African Department of Trade and Industry, the DTI. The study was called South African IT Industrial Strategy, or CITES. In the study, I was involved as a member of one of the working groups. The overall conclusion of CITES was that South Africa's IT sector had lots of very positive attributes that made it world-class and a very important asset for the country. However, there were also some key weaknesses and problems. The CITES project produced a number of detailed reports and recommendations were released in 2000. Five of these recommendations most interested me. The first of these was that the local IT industry needed to begin benchmarking themselves against the rest of the world. In other words, local companies needed to look beyond South Africa's borders and begin comparing how to stack up against international best practice. The second recommendation was that South Africa needed to grow the size of its IT sector. We had a really good IT sector, but it was very small in international terms. In particular, we needed to grow the number of people working in IT. This would involve bringing more young people, more people of color, and more women into the sector. In the late 1990s, when the CITES report was being done, the local IT sector consisted mostly of aging white men, kind of looked a bit like me. The third recommendation was closely linked to the second one. It spoke about skills development. We needed to upskill existing IT professionals and train the next generation. The fourth recommendation from CITES that interested me most was about research. It was about research, innovation and entrepreneurship. 
to grow the local IT industry and to make it world-class would require a constant stream of innovative new ideas, some of which would turn into new products and new services. The fifth and final recommendation that I focused on spoke about making South Africa's IT industry more visible to the world. We had emerged from the dark days of apartheid and sanctions. Very few people in the rest of the world knew anything about the South African IT sector. They knew nothing about its achievements, its people, its companies. So the CITES report recommended that a concerted effort was made to showcase the local IT industry around the world. There were several other really important recommendations in the CITES report. For example, that the cost of telecommunications, including internet access, should be reduced. So CITES comes up with this incredibly necessary, maybe even bold and ambitious report. But what happened to it and its recommendations? The quick answer is not a lot. Although that's not quite fair to say that. As I said in the 1990s at the dawn of post-apartheid South Africa, our local IT industry stood at a sort of crossroads. Uh, the CITES report was a really valuable initiative that consulted broadly and drew in a lot of expertise, local and international. Its outputs were presented both to government via the DTI and to the local IT sector with the expectation that the recommendations would be implemented. There were a few important developments after CITES finished its work, but I'm not sure if these were directly as a result of CITES or whether it was for other reasons. In 2001, the then President Thabo Mbeki appointed a Presidential International Advisory Council on Information Society and Development, quite a mouthful, to advise him in ensuring that South Africa does not lag behind with ICT. It was responsible for, quote, defining the manner in which the global economy functions with respect to ICT. This presidential council consisted of CEOs and heads of major international corporations and other experts. Members included international heads of companies like Hewlett Packard HP, Cisco, Ericsson, Nokia and Siemens. It met annually from 2001 to 2009. In 2009 it was dismantled by Jacob Zuma. One suggestion of the Advisory Council was to launch a national ICT institute, a sort of ICT university. Although the intention was very bold and ambitious, it became much less bold and ambitious by the time it was implemented. It landed up as a division within the CSIR in Pretoria, called the Maraca Institute, launched in 2005. As an unfortunate footnote, Morocco closed in 2019 without making the huge impact that had been visualised by the Presidential Advisory Council. Another initiative by the Mbeki government after the CITES report was to amend the South African Telecommunications Act in 2001, 
This allowed a second national fixed-line telecommunications operator to be formed, which led to the establishment of Neotel as a competitor to Telcom. By the way, Neotel is now called Liquid Telecom. This second operator was meant to dramatically drive down the cost of connectivity. And as it turned out, the cost of data in South Africa is still far higher than many other countries in the developed world. I believe that neither government nor industry seriously responded to the CITES recommendations. An opportunity was lost. Sadly, this is one of the many examples in post-apartheid South Africa of governments strategizing and talking and making wonderful plans but landing up doing nothing or far too little. Where's the CITES report now? I have a copy saved on my laptop, but I doubt if anyone in government or industry would even know that the report existed. Nevertheless, one relatively small, but very practical and tangible result that came out of CITES was my response to it. In May 2005, I established the Joburg Center for Software Engineering, JCSE, at Wits University. This was a direct response to those five CITES recommendations that I mentioned earlier. So I find that super disheartening, and I think in my world, like it's, it's usually in the context of like AI ethics, but the problem with like frameworks and recommendations is that they're just nice to haves, but there's nothing to really enforce it. And unless you make it everyone's problem and there are like some sort of accountability measures, like these things just never happen. And that's super devastating because it sounds so powerful, it sounds so necessary. And it just, yeah. And um, I have to say that I've quoted the CITES report, but there were a whole lot of other reports that government produced and work that people did, research looking at ways to improve the IT industry. And, and most of them led to recommendations that then led to nothing or very little. So it's, I think it's the nature of our democracy where government is very quick to, um, to consult, to develop amazing strategies, but then th they fall over in terms of implementation. And I, I kind of have to say, it is a small way, but the fact that I formed the JCSE coming out of CITES at least was some action that flowed out of it. And there should have been huge action on the part of government to deal with the amazing recommendations that came out of that report and many others. I fully agree. Um, and I guess, so before you spoke about the, the JCSE, I kind of want to understand like why you got involved in all of this. Like, was it part of your job at FITS or, yeah, paint, paint me a little picture. This is uh, something that people often ask me, um, and I find it hard to answer. It's certainly not part of my job description as a WITS professor. Um, a WITS academic and academics at most other universities are expected to teach a few courses, supervise postgrads, do their own research, and publish a paper or two each year. Uh, that's the expectation of our job. Um, additionally, senior academics are required to do some admin, 
and to serve on a few university committees. Most um, academics that I know, senior academics that I know, do as little of this admin work as they can get away with. Um, although many of my academic colleagues will probably object to me saying this, but a university job is really a pretty laid-back existence. The stuff I've involved myself in, like developing CART for mass electrification and working to uplift the local IT industry, goes far beyond my WITS job description. Many of my academic peers think I'm completely crazy for getting involved in the things I do. So why do I do it? You're the philosophy student, so maybe you can uh, explain this differently. But it's my belief that there are two types of people in the world. There are those who look inwards and those who look outwards. The inward lookers tend to define a circle, a sort of boundary. And this circle might enclose only themselves or their immediate family or maybe a slightly wider group. They are concerned with the well-being of what lies inside the circle. Um, everything they do is ultimately for the well-being and support of their inner circle. To them, everything outside the circle is seen either as a threat or as something that can be used to benefit the inner circle. The second type of person still defines a circle around themselves their family or, or their immediate community, but they tend to look outwards. They see themselves as entities in a bigger connected network of other circles. They see their own circle as a resource with an obligation and a desire to use their resources to benefit the bigger network. They also extract their own meaning and happiness from being part of the network. So. Um, to explain how this really kind of relates to me. When I was growing up as a white South African in Johannesburg, I guess I was an inward looker. I come from a family that wasn't well off. My parents ran a small retail shop. They worked incredibly hard and made numerous sacrifices to ensure that my two brothers and I had all that we needed and that we were able to get a good education. I would never have thought of myself as privileged, particularly when I looked around at some of my peers who had much more stuff, bigger houses, better clothes, fancy appearance, holidays abroad. And the reality of apartheid was that my world was white South Africa. I never really engaged with black South Africa. And then as a 19 year old in my first year at university, I joined an organization called SAVS. I spoke about this in an earlier episode. For the first time, I saw how most South Africans lived. On my first SAVS camp, we spent two weeks working in a rural village where people lived in mud huts. They ate one small meal a day. They walked long distances each day to collect water and wood. Many children didn't have the opportunity to go to school. Some of these children died from easily curable illnesses like gastroenteritis. Most had pot bellies and skinny limbs, the symptoms of kwashiorkor, which is a severe protein malnutrition. 
Nuclear families were non-existent. Women and children lived in the rural villages, while men went away, maybe for years at a time, as migrant workers to the mines and the cities. Seeing this flipped a switch in my brain. I would never be able to be an inward looker again. A really nice analogy of how I now see the world is as a coral reef or a rainforest. These are ecosystems in which everything, large and small, contributes as best as it can to the success of the reef or the forest as a whole. So, to come to your question, almost every major thing I've done since my early 20s, working with SAVs, leaving South Africa to avoid conscription into the apartheid army, working on secret ANC projects, returning South Africa as part of the underground, working on mass electrification, forming the JCSE to support the local IT industry, and then things that I did after that. These were all ways in which I felt I could play my part, sometimes small, sometimes larger, in achieving a greater goal. There's always been some greater goal that I really believe in. Um, I find this analogy that you've made about like the inward circle and the outward circle to be so interesting. And there's a, a famous philosopher, David Hume, who speaks a lot about experiences and that you can't necessarily know anything unless it's empirical. And I wonder if this idea of being able to have an outward circle can only be known through the opportunity of experiencing it. And if it's even possible to care about people outside of your circle, even like at a second order desire level, like... Is that even possible? And I think now, especially when you have access to like information, people, because of you know globalization and internet, that doesn't feel like an excuse to not have this massive outward circle. Um, and I think that maybe just makes me sad about my generation and my age mates is that it is a lot easier to care and sometimes there's still that disconnect. Um, but anyway, I digress. <laughs> Could I just um, say something on that? And I think that I do feel quite sad because I think in my generation there was a lot of uh, volunteerism or people volunteered their time. So really the, the, the struggle against apartheid in South Africa was an example where people really gave their lives to make the country better, not for themselves, but for their communities and the future of the country. And I don't see that level of volunteerism, or whatever the word is, happening anymore, or, or there seems to be much less. Maybe in the environmental movement and other ways people are engaging, but I, get, but I, I do find less of that engagement than I had. Uh, growing up as a young person in South Africa. I'm inclined to believe that. And I also think that social capital works a lot differently now. Like you're more willing to volunteer or, or put your name out there if you know that there are people looking, looking at you or looking towards you. Whereas I guess that same kind of social capital structure didn't exist when you were growing up. And that's also icky. <laughs> Yeah. So going back to the Joburg Center for Software Engineering, you said that it was in response to these five recommendations that really spoke to you, the ones from, from CITES. Um, tell me a little bit more about that. So in May 2005, the JCSC was 
set up as a center at Wits University. Maybe I should explain briefly what a university center is. In my mind, a university is a bit like a sausage machine. It's designed to do certain things, and it does those things really well. Wits and its systems are designed to attract successful matriculants, enroll them into academic programs, and then support their learning until they're ready to leave with a degree. Wits is also designed to support academic research and postgraduate studies. This is the sausage machine and it does very well, or at least relatively well, at supporting these mainstream activities. On the other hand, universities are pretty bad, and this is no exception, at doing things outside of these main activities. Most universities struggle to develop engagements with outside stakeholder groups, such as companies, communities, governments, etc. They aren't good at running specialized training outside of their main curriculum or doing contract research. For this reason, universities in many countries have defined the concept of a center. Centers operate outside of the sausage machine. They take on activities that fall outside the mainstream. To work well, a center should be allowed by the university to operate in a flexible and agile way without being constrained by some of the university's processes, rules and regulations. In many ways, this creates a sort of dynamic tension between the university and the centers. It's the tension between adherence to rules and regulations and the freedom to operate independently. Those universities that get this balance right find that a lot of benefits result via their centers. Wits has defined the concept of a center within its organizational framework. In February 2005, I put forward a proposal to create the Joburg Center for Software Engineering, and it was approved by the university's council. It was formally launched in May 2005, my aim in setting up the JCSE was to use it as a way to coordinate the efforts of government, academia and industry to support the success and growth of the South African and African IT sectors. The JCSE would do this by finding ways to implement those CITES recommendations that I mentioned earlier. The five goals of the JCSE are Firstly, to support the adoption of world-class best practices in software engineering within an African context. Secondly, to build capacity, in other words, to grow skills. Thirdly, to promote transformation, to bring more people of color, more women and more young people into the IT sector. Fourthly, to promote research, innovation and entrepreneurship. And fifthly, to work with other stakeholders to promote the South African IT sector. The first thing that really shocks me is that you put forward this framework in February 2005, and then it got launched in May 2005. That is like the quickest turnaround time I've ever heard of a university. So you mentioned these five goals, and 
I'll, I'll get into my next question, but like, I just want to understand a little bit about the goals. So I know in corporate, if you have goals, you have these hardcore like KPIs that you have to meet. And if you don't, then, you know, either you lose your funding or there are like some, some kind of, some actionable things that will happen to you. So these five goals, are obviously like exceptional and necessary, but does anything happen if you don't meet them or are there specific criteria that you have to meet for these five, these five goals? And then how exactly did you work to achieve them? So yeah, I guess it's a two-part question. So to um, talk a bit about how the goals related to what the JCSC does is exactly right. And, and the pressure on me was to run it as a business. So we um, had the goals, we defined the goals. We've got a board and the board set me the... Um, goals as my KPIs, my key performance indicators, and I was measured every year against the achievement of these goals to the point that my salary and my staff's uh, salary was linked to achieving these goals and how we scored on our KPIs. So we took these goals very seriously. Against each of them, we defined ways to measure and we measured whether we, we were achieving the goals, and then uh, the board would, would score me at the end of each year. So that's how the goals were used within the JCSE. To achieve the goals, we had to develop a whole lot of programs. And uh, when the JCSE was first established, I managed to bring in some important partners these included IBM, Microsoft, Vodacom, FNB, and the city of Johannesburg. However, progress was quite slow in the first year or two. Although it was me that had established the JCSE, I wasn't initially running it. By 2007, I realized that if my vision for the JCSE was going to be achieved, I would need to run it myself on a full-time basis. This agreed to let me move over in 2007 from my full-time academic job as a professor in the School of Electrical and Information Engineering to become the full-time director of the JCSE. So they seconded me to the JCSE. And interestingly, from that time on, my salary was no longer paid by WITS, but was paid by the JCSE, and I had to raise funding to pay myself and my staff. So uh, that's how it worked from then on. What I initially decided to focus on was the key issue around best practices. In 2005, I had the opportunity to visit India and learn about their IT industry. I was blown away with what I saw. In the 1960s, India was one of the least developed countries in the world. There was extreme poverty and huge unemployment. Anyone suggesting at that time that India would become one of the top countries in the world in the high-tech field of software development would have been laughed at. One of the most important companies in India at that time, and still today, was Tata. Um, Tata had subsidiaries in many sectors, including steel, manufacturing, and power systems. It was in the 1960s that 
one of Tata's top electrical engineers by the name of F.C. Coley started using an early mainframe computer called the CDC 3600 for the design and control of electrical power systems. The computer he used was one of the very few computers in India at the time. It was located at a research center in Bombay called the Tata Institute for Fundamental Research. In 1969, Mr. Kohli was appointed as general manager of Tata Consulting Services, or TCS, and worked on bringing computers into Tata's businesses. Today, Mr. Kohli, who is still alive and in his late 90s, is recognized as the father of India's huge and incredibly important IT industry. The thing was, as I explained, that there was not much computerization work in India because the government of the day was not for encouraging automation or computerization. Uh, when I visited India in 2005, I was hosted by TCS and had the privilege of meeting F.C. Kohli, who was then 81 years old. We surprisingly had a lot in common. We are both electrical engineers. We had both worked on using mainframes to develop control systems. And we had both used the computer to design power systems. We had a fantastic discussion. And Mr. Coley instantly became one of my all-time heroes. Speaking to him and subsequent reading and discussions with many others helped me understand how the Indian software industry came about. Uh, let me try to very briefly highlight some of the key moments in its history. I think we'll uh, devote a whole podcast episode later on the Indian IT industry and its lessons for Africa. The key moment was when the US company Burroughs asked TCS to provide programmers for a large project. This was the start of outsourcing of software jobs from the US and then other developed countries to India. It became huge. A key issue, however, was how to build trust between the customer, which was the company in the US or the European Union, that was thinking of sending a software development project to India, and the software development partner in India. Imagine an executive sitting in a corporate headquarters building in New York or Chicago or London, making a decision to send a multi-million dollar software development project to Bangalore or Mumbai. If you've ever been to Bangalore or Mumbai and seen how completely different it is from New York or London, you'll understand how difficult such a decision would be. TCS and then other Indian software companies had to convince the world that they were world-class and capable. So I think this is going to be a, a relatively simple but non-trivial question. But how does one measure the capability of a software development team? Uh, that was the key issue. The Indian IT companies needed a benchmark that the US and Europe would trust. So this is where Carnegie Mellon University and another of my heroes into the story. In 1984, 
the US Department of Defense, one of the biggest acquirers of software in the world, were becoming increasingly concerned about the fact that big software projects were being delivered late, over budget, and with quality issues. I called it in a previous episode the software crisis. They funded a research and development center at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh to deliver innovative methods and tools to deal with these issues. It is called the Software Engineering Institute, or SCI, and was launched in 1984. In 1986, they hired Watts Humphrey, who had recently retired from IBM, where he had been head of software engineering, and where he had successfully managed some of the largest software projects ever completed at that time. I'd been trained originally as a physicist, and I've always thought that unless you do things right at the very smallest level, it's hard to work effectively and build big things. Software today has about one defect, that's one mistake in every thousand lines of code. And the defect could be something as simple as a, as a comma instead of a semicolon, or it could be a design mistake. Ordinary systems literally have a, close to a million lines of code. And that means if you have a defect every thousand lines of code, one of these systems will have a thousand defects in it. Well, can you imagine driving a car that's controlled by software that has a thousand defects? Watts believed that there is a direct relationship between how you produce something and the quality of the something you produce. Imagine taking your car into a workshop to be fixed. If the workshop you walk into is complete chaos with tools and spare parts and half-fixed cars lying all over the place, and compare this to another workshop with everything neat and tidy and all in its place, which would you expect to do better quality work? In Watts Humphrey's world, he believed that the better the process, the better the product. This is called the process management premise. Of course, some would argue that this connection isn't valid, but Watts and the Software Engineering Institute build their huge reputation on this premise. So, at the Software Engineering Institute in the late 1980s, Watts Humphrey, who has become known as the father of software quality and is definitely one of my all-time heroes, developed a process improvement model. It was called the Software Capability Maturity Model, or Software CMM. It's got five levels of maturity ranging from ad hoc, or level one, to optimizing level five. A software development organization can measure their processes against this model and determine the level that they're at and then use the best practices in the model to move to a higher level. So it provides both a measuring stick and a, and a roadmap. So you measure where you are and then you use the map to work out how you get to the next level. In the 1990s and 2000s, this model and its successor called CMMI became hugely influential in the field of software engineering. Thousands of organizations from huge companies 
like Boeing and NASA to tiny software teams around the world used the SEI's CMM and CMMI models to measure and improve their capability. There have been many studies on how these models improved the performance of the software industry. Critically, to come back to the story about the Indian software industry, TCS and then other Indian software companies adopted CMMI and worked their way up to maturity level 5. This meant that the corporate executive in Chicago, thinking of sending a multi-million dollar software development project to Bangalore, would have a benchmark he could trust to convince himself and his board that the Indian company could deliver quality. This was the lesson I brought back to the JCSE from India after several visits between 2005 and 2007. One thing that I was found really interesting, uh, and you mentioned it, is the, that relationship between how you create something and then the quality of the thing that you're creating, and how in like many instances, like this current working environment is almost expanded upon or even extrapolated that same principle in the mental health in the workplace, and like that if you have a healthy working environment, it's a lot easier to show up and be creative, and it's it's so obvious because it's so intuitive, right? I, yeah, I really like that relationship that you mentioned. To uh, just also say that, that there's a companion model that, the, that also produced by the SEI called People CMM. So it looks exactly at that. It looks at how you deal with people in a workplace and create mature people processes to make people as productive and as um, effective as possible. So you, you can also measure um, other things apart from your software processes using similar models. Humans work best when they're treated as humans. <laughs> How did you and the JCSE use this lesson? It's true to say that the South African software industry in the mid-2000s had a huge credibility gap. In 2001, for example, a local company called Tasima was contracted by the National Department of Transport to develop a vehicle licensing database called Enatus, which is still in use today. Uh, this project became a classic example of overexpenditure and underdelivery. When it was launched in 2007, this Enatus system was so bad that angry crowds attacked vehicle licensing department officers around the country. This was just one of many local IT projects in both the government and private sector that went bad. In the government space, the screw-ups were all too public. In the private sector, for example, in the banks, failed projects were quietly buried, so we didn't hear much about those failures. In some cases, when local organizations issued tenders for software development projects, the question of capability was addressed. An example was my own institution, when WITS decided in the mid-2000s to replace the existing mainframe programs that ran student administration, finance and HR processes, the university's management was advised by the internal auditors 
to specify that any company awarded the contract should be at CMMI maturity level four or five. This immediately ruled out all local software companies since the only local company with a CMMI rating at that time was Nedbank, who were at level four. Eventually, TCS from India was awarded the WITS contract. In 2007, the JCSE became the first African partner of the Software Engineering Institute at Carnegie Mellon, and we applied to the Department of Trade and Industry for funding to bring CMMI to South Africa. We received just over five million rand to do this. We used this money to train instructors, myself included, to teach the SEI's CMMI courses in South Africa. We also trained two certified appraisers who could carry out the benchmarking of companies against the CMMI model. This dramatically reduced the cost of CMMI adoption in South Africa. When Nedbank, for example, had worked on adopting CMMI in about 2000, uh, they had used consultants from the UK and US, and working with these international consultants cost them tens of millions of rand. The JCSC made it possible to get the same training and appraisal for a fraction of the cost using local experts. As part of the JCSC's Bringing CMMI to South Africa program, we worked with 10 local companies to pilot CMMI adoption. I hope that, like in India, this would lead to South Africa playing a part in the huge international outsourcing market for software development. For fairly complex reasons, this didn't happen. These reasons were that the management of South African companies found it really difficult to work in, the, in, in a process-rich environment. They felt much more comfortable using the fairly ad hoc ways they had of working and of managing teams. It also was a time that agile development was beginning to be um, adopted, and many of the people who were adopting agile at that time, set it up in opposition to what the CMMI model was doing. So you were either CMMI or Agile. In later work, we've seen that both these worlds can cohabit quite comfortably. But at the time, we were constantly in arguments with the people in Agile who were saying, uh, you, you can either do CMMI or Agile, and CMMI is the work of the devil, and Agile is the way to go. So we, we kind of had that happening. We will use a future episode of this podcast to talk a bit more about this, because I think it's a very interesting and important issue. Two other major focuses of the JCSE in the past 15 years have been promoting innovation and entrepreneurship, and skills development and transformation. These will be the topics of our next two episodes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Optimizing. It was produced by Professor Barry Dwalatsky, featuring me, Karen Gammy, 
It was edited by Evan Wigdorovitz, music and sound design by Callum Cool, and the mixing was done by Joshua Clark. <laughs>